Pat Sweeney. How is it going? Matt. Hey, buddy. Uh, you know what? We had the greatest time at ILM while you were there. When I would, whenever I'd run into you, it was, it was, we'd have some laughs. And uh, sure. you know, I worked on the Mummy and and Episode One. Uh, I think that's where we we probably interacted. But all of a sudden, you were gone. I'm like, where where did Matt go? So we have just a little bit of unfinished business that I'd like to take care of right now, and. Um, I have a question for you. Why don't dinosaurs make good pets? Because they're all dead. Um, you know, what's the worst place to hide in a hospital? I see you. Uh, <laughs> what did Jay-Z call his wife just before they got married? Fiance. <laughs> anyway, hey, my dad used to sit at the dinner table and make corny jokes, dad jokes that just went right over our heads. And my brother and I would just, you know, we thought, oh, this is, you know, silly fun. And so we we had to carry on the tradition. Uh, it got to the point, I, I mean, this kind of sums it up. We we're at a party in college and uh, our friend Tina Regali says to us, she goes, oh, you Sweeney's, you make fun about anything. You'd probably make a joke about somebody with no arms and legs. And there was a pause. And my brother said, nope, I'm stumped. <laughs> and we rolled around on the floor for five minutes laughing. Um, alcohol could have been a factor. So, <laughs> you know, do you know that I have, uh, there's two tasteless jokes that I could tell along the same lines. You probably know these. What do you call a guy with no arms and no legs in a swimming pool? Bob. And what do you call a guy with no arms and no legs in a jacuzzi? Uh, boy, I give S up. Stew. Oh, stew. <laughs> <laughs> do people know this is going to be an hour of bad jokes? Uh, <laughs> if only. I mean, it would be like we could start a whole new show called like the Dad Joke Podcast or something. Yeah, they, they've got those. Let me tell you. <laughs> good oh, so good. So take it away, Matt. Yeah, so uh, this is so exciting to get a chance to talk to you. I haven't seen you in probably 20, uh, 20, I don't know, let's see, well, how long has it been since 99? So so 22 years. 22 years, yeah. That's a long time. maybe, yeah. yeah you look crazy. the same, though. You haven't changed. <laughs> You're too funny. Just you keep were, those jokes coming, yeah. Yeah, it's like you had progeria back when we were working at uh, ILM together. You looked old before your time. Yeah. But, um, um, <laughs> you know, I I remember my parents taking us out to dinner. Um, I think it was, you know, high school or whatever. And, you know, they would service wine or whatever. I mean, they just, we, you know, like you said, looked, always looked older. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because guys like you and me, we both are follically challenged. Yes. Yeah, yes, so that helps a lot. <laughs> hey, so uh, I, I know I don't really know much about, uh, well, I don't know anything about your background. Where are you originally from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern California in Manhattan Beach, which is like 20 miles southwest of downtown LA. And um, it was, you know, growing up in the 60s, it was just idyllic. And uh, you know, that's where we spent our summers at the beach. Um, just, <laughs> you know, it was, we just 
we live close enough. We just walked down there and man, it was, it was just a fantastic way to grow up. Um, did you surf as a kid? You know, my older brother did the surfing with the surfboard and he'd get all banged up and he'd have to, you know, <laughs> you know, haul the surfboard around. And so, you know, we were like, I don't, I don't want to do that. So we, we just, I just body surfed. I love yeah. body surfing. And so yeah. that's, that's what I would do. It's great. You go there, Hey, you know, no equipment, jump in the water and catch some waves. Well, it's so cool too. Yeah. I mean, like I, I grew up in Southern California too. And I, you know, would go down to like Huntington beach or Newport beach is really close to where we lived. And like going to the beach in the summer, I just took it for granted. Like that was like totally normal. And then, you know, living in other parts of the country, people are like, wait, you grew up 20 minutes from the beach and you were even closer. Yes. Oh yeah. Minutes. That's cool. So now what did your, um, what did your folks do? So my dad was a lawyer and uh, I know your dad was a judge. Uh, and, you know, the other half of this humor business is, you know, my dad was a bit of a performer. I mean, he would tell us about his courtroom stuff and his, his trials. And um, like, he'd be up against, he, um, he started out as um trying to get in you know being a prosecutor and mm -hmm. and uh, when the mob told him that um either you work for us or nobody um he said nah i'm gonna switch over to civil litigation and so he would um <laughs> he'd go to the courtroom and he would he would like be up against all these lawyers you know like five or six lawyers come in with their 500 dollars suits and my dad would be in his you know threadbare suit and and he'd go and he, he would tell us, you know, how he just worked the jury. You know, my poor client, you know, the <laughs> poor kid got hit with a, you know, a dog bone out of the lawnmower and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, <laughs> and so he, he just, he won almost all of his cases. All the wow, time. that's cool. Um, so he was, that was great. Um, well, there's something but, too about like an attorney like, uh, you know, that my dad was an attorney before he became a judge. And like, there's something about the performative aspect of being an attorney in the courtroom. If you do go to trial and now so many cases are, you know, settled prior to going into the courtroom, but a jury trial, like the performative aspect of it, like that theatrical, you know, kind of, uh, piece of it. It's, it's so interesting and it's got to rub off on, uh, the offspring of an attorney, I think. Oh yeah. And mom was, uh, stuck at home, cooking and cleaning, taking care of six young hooligans, uh, trying to keep them out of mis mischief and then just yelling all the Wait, time. Six, Wait, father gets home. Yeah. Six um, kids, six kids. Uh, so yeah, my, my older sister is, uh, six years older. My older brother's, uh, two and a half years older than I have my twin brother. And then I got a younger sister who's five years younger. And then my youngest brother uh, was five years or 10 years younger than me. So he came wow. along uh, kind of at the tail end of my sister had probably almost left the house, I think, by the time he was part of the group. But at one point, there was five of us. And uh, my parents, um, one summer, my dad had to take de depositions around the country we drove from <laughs> Southern California all along the South 
Florida, all the way up through Washington, up to New York. We had uh, my dad's sister and her husband lived in New York. And so we spent some time there and then went to Chicago and then drove on. We, it was like a three month trip in this, you know, Pontiac station wagon and, and, uh, you know, with broken air conditioning and <laughs> it was, I, I just, I can't believe they did that. It, it, what a, you know, can you imagine? It's so cool though. Like, kids. I mean, those are definitely the kind of things that like, you know, as a parent myself, like I think about some of those kinds of adventures we would go on and there are times where you're on the trip and it feels kind of like a nightmare, but then the memories of it are always kind of cool, you know? <laughs> yeah. there. I mean, it was, I'll never forget it. And I was only five years old. So wait, you have, you say you have a twin brother. Are you identical twins or? We are identical twins. And, um, who was first out? Are you or the brother? Well, I was the first one out. And then, uh, oh, so you know, you're superior. I, I would come back <laughs> to the hospital every day asking if Mike could come out and play. And mom's like, you know, I'm working on, um, but uh, he was, he was 10 minutes behind me. And, uh, so, uh, but, uh, I, you know, I'm sure they were a little shocked twins, you know, after having two kids already, and then you get to get a, Oh, so they didn't know it was twins until, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't remember, but yeah. Uh, uh, you, you know, looking at our pictures, we're so identical. If I look at our childhood pictures, I'm not sure which one is me. That's, <laughs> that's how close we look. And I said to my mom, I'm like, wait a minute, mom. So you'd bathe this at the same time. How'd you know who was who? And she goes, well, we, we put this little necklace on you that had your name on it. You know, I was like, like that probably never got mixed up. I'm probably Mike instead of Pat. I, I'm not sure. I just don't know. <laughs> so, so that's interesting though. Like having a twin, I have a couple friends who are, who are twins uh, from my childhood, people I knew growing up. And, um, you know, sometimes the twins got along great and they're really close. And sometimes they didn't get on so well. Did you and your brother get along well? Uh, most of the time we did, we, we had a, a couple of knockdown drag outs and, uh, and my parents would say later, you know, ah, they're in the back room fighting it out. Yeah. Whatever. We'll just let them take care of it. And, yeah. Uh, well, that could happen with really, any two brothers, I suppose too. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. So even, you know, as close as we were, it was, you know, that can happen, but it was uh, kind of crazy because we, we, you know, they talk about, uh, do you have mental telepathy and all this sort of stuff? Oh, wait, sorry. Mike's calling me right now. Oh, um, but, but, you know, we, we literally thought the same and we would countless times, somebody would ask us a question. We would both answer exactly the same, exactly at the same time. And it That's was so weird. It, it, it's normal. Come on, Matt. Jeez. I thought, you know, <laughs> I, I, but you know, that was the other part of the humor thing is that people would see you and you go, are you guys twins? And you know, which one is which? Well, I'm me and he's him, you know, and, and, you know, you just became a little sarcastic, a little, sure. weird. you went along and it was, uh, you know, Hey, your brother's ugly. You know, that's, that's, that's really <laughs> funny. I've never heard that one before. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, but so now, we, you know, anyway, go ahead. Oh yeah. No, I just wondering, like, so growing up in Manhattan beach, uh, with your siblings and stuff, did you, uh, like in, you know, middle school, high school, like what, what were you kind of into? What kind of, like, what was your universe about? Like in terms of like music or interests or things like that, what were you into? 
we we grew up um, right across from the Catholic Church, and uh, <laughs> and right down the school uh, street was the the Catholic school, and so we all just trudged down the, the street to the school, which was, you know, very convenient. Um, and then for high school, um, we decided, hey, you know, my older brother went to Loyola High School in in downtown LA, and so. We're like, oh, we'll follow in his footsteps. It's a college prep. And we were really into, um, you know, getting a good education because we wanted to get into college and, and pursue. You know, we'd be, we about age of 10 or something, we were just fascinated with TV. And, you know, as you've heard before, you know, Ray Harryhausen, uh, King Kong, all these movies just they were just the greatest. And so we're like, I, you know, in school, they said, like fifth grade, what do you want to be? And I, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm going to work for Disney, you know? And, and really, so, we, so we, as we, a really young kid, that was something that you, you had identified that that was something you wanted to do. Like when you yes. were pretty little still, yes. did, what and, did, were your, did any of your siblings have the same goal no. or was it, that was just no. your jam. You were really that into was, it. That was us. And, and went to high school, there was, one uh, film class. I don't think we really made films, but we got a Minolta Super 8 camera and it had the, of course, all important SF button single frame. And uh, <laughs> so we could do our animation uh, stuff and, and pixelation. And, and so it was, that thing was just, you know, heaven. It's so, so cool. I mean, it's so interesting that like, you know, it's, it's so specific to, really a certain generation that grows up in that period of time where, uh, you know, home movie cameras become an affordable thing. They become kind of a trendy thing that a lot of families have. And there's a whole generation of young kids who pick those up and start to really look at that as like some form of some kind of play, but some kind of expression too. Like, I mean, it's such a, it's a really small window of time where that's kind of the modus operandi. That's so cool. Like, and you're one of those kids. And, you know, with still photography, my parents never took pictures or anything. And so I would do it, you know, I just, you know, I got my little Instamatic and, you know, all that kind of stuff and, and uh, just took a lot of the family pictures. And Do you think that interest for you, did it come from just from those movies that were on TV? Do you think that's what sparked that interest or was there yeah, any other? Yeah, no, I think that was it. I, I mean, we just, you know, watched the adventures of Superman and just, oh yeah, go outside and run around, you know, with a towel, you know, strapped <laughs> to your neck, you know, I'm flying. So, um, no, we just, it, it was, some, it was fantastic. It's a make-believe escape, you know, it was beautiful, just wonderful. You know? So you're, you're at Loyola for high school, right? Mm -hmm. And you have, you do have one film class that maybe is more like a film studies or film appreciation kind of course than a right. production yeah. class. And as you're getting close to finishing high school, like college is something that is part of the game plan for you guys, I gather. Absolutely. And um, Loyola high school was uh, a very <laughs> competitive uh, school and, and they, they would rank you based on your grades. They had a ranking, you know, like, I think there's 200 kids in our class and, you know, one to, 
Now I think they they just put up the honor roll like one to fifty or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and you know it was like you just studied hard, uh, and it was kind of it was good to learn that discipline. Sure. Um, and so that was the hardest studying I ever did. I did in college came easy after after getting through high school, and uh, so then um, you know we were kind of we didn't really get our growth till later, so. Kind of wanted to do some sports, but really what we ended up doing was coming home and playing with the guys on the block. And we mm-hmm. played, you know, football, basketball, and baseball. And, you know, <clears throat> uh, one time my brother and I were um, looking for a game. We go down to the park and uh, we have a two and two, two against two game. And, and um, the, this basketball court was next to, they were building a tennis court right next door to the basketball court and it but it was lowered down about four feet from the basketball court and so uh the ball got away i'm chasing the ball i don't want it to fall down into the new tennis court because then i gotta climb down there and get it yeah sure it gets to the edge i reach for it next thing i know i'm waking up on the ground um what had happened was they framed the fence that was going to go between the basketball court and the, <laughs> and and the tennis court, but they hadn't put the fencing on. And my top of my head hit a crossbar. I oh. my brother told me I flipped, you know, into the tennis court and landed on the ground. Wow, <laughs> that was a heck of a concussion. Let me tell you, that explains a lot though about your yeah, personality. It, it, yeah, you know, it's <laughs> jelly for brains. You know, that's. <laughs> Started, That's crazy though. You're lucky yeah. that like that didn't wind up, you know, being a more serious injury. I mean, that's like the kind of uh, freak accident where like all bets are off, like anything can happen there. Exactly. Yeah. Freaky. Look <laughs> at the Irish. So. <laughs> so, so you, you see, but you finish up high school and do you have a sense like as you're in your senior year or, or maybe before, like where you want to go to school, what you want to study? Definitely thinking of colleges when I was in high school and uh, decided on applying to Stanford, Loyola Marymount, and USC. And Stanford turned me down, but uh, USC and Loyola accepted both me and my brother. And so uh, Mike really wanted to go to Loyola. And USC was, I knew, would be um, very, you know, it got a lot of connections potentially uh, and, you know, of course had the name for the film school, all that kind of stuff. And um, they were already asking for money at 200 bucks just to hold your spot. Mm-hmm. And, and I was, you know, I, I didn't really want to separate from my brother either. <laughs> we, you know, we, we uh, that's cool do, though. Yeah. I mean, you know, but, but the, here was the thing with Loyola. We went and toured Loyola and they had the newest, film and tv studios west of the mississippi in the in the early 70s mm-hmm. so we're like you know i was like i can i can get my hands on equipment i can maybe do a lot more here than i could do at usc usc just seemed like it was going to be you know harder to beat the system as it were so we, we ended up going to loyola and uh uh it was tremendous. We had um, 
you know, the first couple of years you're, you're studying about film, you're doing writing classes, all this kind of stuff. And we went to, uh, one night we went and watched the directing class. Lamar Caselli was the director, uh, teacher, and he, he had done stuff, you know, like soap operas and stuff like that. And, uh, in his career. And so these, <laughs> these directing classes, people were using their friends and, you know, they're going like, the, the productions are awful. It looked awful, yeah. you know, because, yeah. <laughs> you know, people are laughing and forgetting their lines and, and all this stuff. And, you know, I can just hear, you know, he was his fiery Italian guy. He would just be like, you know, it's not pan up, it's tilt up, you know, and, and stuff. Because <laughs> he's already explained it how many times, I'm sure, right? You know? So, you know, by the time we get to um, uh, junior and senior years, that's when we did television shows, films, everything. And so, and you would move around to all the different equipment. You'd be the camera person, you'd be the uh, TD, you'd, you know, you'd be the director. Of course, you'd have to do audio. So you're, you're learning all about all the different kinds of things. And, um, you know, it was just uh, uh, wonderful. And the, and the thing that I knew immediately is when my directing uh, as a director class came up, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show these people what needs to be done. And I had um, a friend of the family's, uh, the Larkins, um, Teresa Larkin, their daughter, who we we knew growing up, um, went to Loyola, and she was in the theater arts department. I said, you know, Teresa, this would be great experience. Get on, you know, learn how to act in front of the cameras, and can you get me uh, a male lead for this thing? And so she did, and. Um, so we do the class and these guys were just, it was, it was just, you know, fantastic. The directing class wasn't about production. So you didn't have a big set or anything. It was all mm -hmm. about the directing, the angles you're choosing and, and, you know, the actors doing their thing. And um, after that, man, I, I just had created this link between the film and, and uh, theater departments. And those guys just started flooding over everybody. So, Boink. this is how you do it <laughs> yeah i mean that's so great yeah i mean because so much of what makes you know something work on screen is you know all the stories you hear about everybody saying it's it's casting once you get the right people in the right role somebody who can really deliver you know the rest is kind of you know not totally but on some levels on autopilot you know if you're making the right decisions about how to you know set up and line up a shot so one of our teachers, too, really, Williams says, he's like, he's an Australian guy. He's like, you got to beat the system. And and so what he, he said is, like, you know, they only give you a certain amount of time to, to build your sets and do, you know, there's the hour or two you're supposed to spend after class doing that. He goes, you sneak in the studio and you, you do it all night if you need to. <laughs> and so that's what we would do. And, and uh, in fact, the week that you had a, a, a big production coming up, you would take the week off of school from your other classes and just concentrate on that. And, and so my brother and I now for the first time, we're, we're allowed to be in the same class. And so we, we took all the same classes and that way, you know, if one of us was doing a project, the other guy could, turn in his homework, you know, and, and, you know, keep them up to date. Um, one class, I think it was astronomy. Uh, one of the deals was uh, attendance was part of your grade. And so 
the way he took attendance was he would collect the homework and stand in front of the class. And so, <laughs> you know, he calls Michael Sweeney. I bring up my brother's homework, go back to my seat. Patrick Sweeney, I come back up, <laughs> bring up my homework. Uh, the He's power like, of the identical twin. <laughs> He's like, wait a minute, you cannot be two people. You know, and uh, I never said a word. So <laughs> very handy. You have like two shirts on. Take off one shirt. <laughs> well, he, 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 you know, he's watching me, and all of a sudden, I'm coming right back up. I mean, it's nowhere to hide. So it's so good. So that's cool. So you guys are. So he was a film major too. Then your brother. We did all the same things. Yeah. 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 We just. Yeah. I mean. We, so we, so you took all those classes. Did you like make short films then of your own? design yes yeah yeah in fact and what would you did, shoot them on were they all shot on like 16 16 yeah, yeah 16 millimeter and and we did uh one our junior project um the film i, I came up with this idea uh <laughs> was not very politically correct <laughs> I, I i called it the weight we were and uh and i Anyway, it was all these heavier set people get into my car, which was a 1970 Volkswagen Bug. And uh, there's a chauffeur driving and, uh, and he's driving them. And all of a sudden they each start pulling out food and, and just, <laughs> you know, and so it really played up the sound aspect, like crunching celery. And, and, you know, all of a sudden it gets crazy. A woman's holding up a watermelon and, a, you know, eating stuff. And the driver's just going crazy, you know. And um, <clears throat> the hard part was I had to call. Mike's like, well, <laughs> sure I do. You call these people and tell them what they're going to be doing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and what the point of the film is, I'm like, oh, boys, uh, you know, it was delicate calls. But once again, it was uh, a couple of them were theater arts people. And they're like, sure. yeah, well, yeah, we're going to do this. Um, and and uh, basically, they end up at uh, the very end of it. They finish eating and the, and the guy uh, driving them screeches to a, a stop. And you, we tilt up and it's, you know, Jacqueline fitness place whatever, <laughs> and uh, and it won best film that year oh wow. so that yeah you know that was kind of kind of fun that's but, cool uh, did you ever have any of those uh any of your student films entered in any film festivals or anything or just you know we we should have done that i just you know we we didn't get it done but uh that, that we, one might have had a chance at some yeah i mean what what were you thinking like so like after as you start to get towards the end of university, did you have like a set kind of goal in mind? Like in you try starting to envision like where you would project yourself uh, after school? That was the hard part. Get out of school. Uh, shockingly, I found out that the studios didn't have their doors wide open for me. And <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm sending resumes, dropping off resumes. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure the secretary took them like, oh, I can line my wastebasket and dump my coffee grounds in here. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was, it was, oops, here's reality. It's like, yeah. you know, and then there's, you get the trades and you look at the, all these little production companies and they're just, they're, they're nothing. Most of them, they're, you know, just somebody's, legal thing that they're using as they're doing their stuff. So 
now I got to get a job because we're, we've moved out of the house. We're living in Playa del Rey. And uh, so my friend Val Stillman goes, Hey Pat, I'm, I'm working at the car rental desk at the Pacifica hotel. You want to, I'm like, yeah, sure. Hey, I'll do anything. You need some money. <laughs> and, uh, and I had to wear a tie and all this. And Val's a little uh, spark plug. And she, she goes to the boss. She goes, Hey, What's with this dress code? I don't have to wear a tie. Pat shouldn't have to wear a tie. He's like, oh, oh okay. No tie, Pat. <laughs> so that was great. Uh, my brother was uh, working. He got a job in a drugstore, a pharmacy, helping the pharmacist or something. And, and so what happened was my brother made a connection to somebody said, hey, go help this stage manager on this play in L.A., and it was waiting for Godot. Mm -hmm. And so he went and helped this guy. And uh, the guy who was a stage manager turned out to be the building manager of this warehouse in Van Nuys where they were shooting the effects for Star Wars. Really? No kidding. Wow. Yes. And so my brother went to work for him, <laughs> you know, sweeping the floors and all that kind of stuff. And so what I, you know, what happened was is, you know, he, he got in, he started doing PA work. And um, as they were filming in Van Wait, Nuys, so your brother, he worked like as a PA on the first Star Wars movie? Yeah. No kidding. I didn't even know that. Wow. And so it got to a point partway through production where people were realizing something was going on at this little warehouse. And so they were dumpster diving and mm -hmm. finding model parts and all this kind of stuff. So they didn't want, they want to make sure that the place was secure, especially the inside where, you know, all the good stuff was. And so uh, they hired some night security and my brother goes, Oh, you know, call my brother, Pat. And so I got a call from Rose Dignan. Rose gave me my first job. And so uh, her husband and I were, he was a, a struggling musician. And so we were watching the place at nights. No and, way. I, that's so crazy. I had no idea. I did not know that at all. That's so wild. And so what's what's nice is like people like um, Lauren Peterson and Steve Gollick would come by and they go, hey, what, what are you, what's your thing, man? You know, And I tell them, hey, I want to get in there. I want to be working with you guys and all that kind of stuff. So now there was at least, you know, some inroad. And during the next period, I, I started, um, I think I helped the build, building manager for a while. And then um, I started working like front desk, reception, um, purchasing agent. And as purchasing, you know, these guys are out running around. And there's only like a couple of lines into, into the facility in Van Nuys. And so the, the drivers, you know, they're, they're on a schedule. They got to, you know, they got to get this stuff back so people can be building models and all this stuff. And so they would, we had another line and it was a black phone behind the main desk and it sat on a, you know, a table there. And, you know, unless you knew the number, you couldn't get through, but the drivers knew when the, when it's busy, we'll call this number. The number was S-T-A-R-W-A-R. -A -R. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and so, you know, late at night, you know, the phone would ring, I'd pick it up. <sighs> Luke, is that you, Luke? <laughs> you know, 
um, and people would, oh my God, we got Star Wars. So <laughs> had some had some fun with that. That's funny. And then um, what happened was I'd I'd given my resume to Bob Shepard, who was the production manager, and I said, hey, you know, if anything opens up, you know, here or somebody from the outside is looking for help, I'm, you know, that'd be fantastic. And so one day he surprised me, he comes out and he goes, hey, here's uh, Jim Valou, he's the director of photography on this show they're going to do at Filmation Studios in Reseda. And uh, they're looking for production help, somebody to just take care of all the production needs while they shoot. And so I go interview with them and bing, get the job. And so finally I'm on a production and it's, you know, this <laughs> Saturday morning TV show. Um, but they were doing these, you know, cool effects. And um, Isa Young and Paul Houston were the model makers there oh, wow. at the time. Yeah. And, um, and so I spent the first season, which was uh, 16 episodes, uh, being their production person and, you know, just getting supplies, doing all the stuff. But there was only two of them. There was the, Jim Blue and his assistant, uh, Diana Wooten. And, and so they would need help on stage. So, and, you know, okay, this is, this is what I trained for, you know, because I had in college, you know, you know, I know C stands. I know how to sure. do all the lights, all this stuff, you know, I'm familiar with this. So I could go in there and help them. Uh, and one of the things that, I did too was the mat passing. They didn't have blue screens. So we would, uh, they had a main ship for Jason. And to make a mat pass, we had a black background. And I would come in when they were finished shooting the beauty pass. And I would, I would put on white tape on the ship, all over the ship. So it was white. And then we would use RAR, rapid access recovery. And, and, make a mat that would give us the reverse image. So we'd have, you know, a black ship against a clear background. And, you know, I develop it right there on the, on, you know, at the facility. Um, the problem with that, of course, is no, okay. You're, <laughs> you're making the ship just a little bigger all the way around with that tape. Mm -hmm. Tape is thin, but still it's going to create some mat lines. And so the producer just, Lou Scheimer, <laughs> he was a great guy. He just said, you know, what the heck, you know, come on guys. You know? and, and so there'd be reshoots, you know, if the, the mat lines were too bad, that sort of thing. And, I'm and curious so though, getting... I just I'm so curious, like, so it's, it's interesting. Like you, you talk about film school and you're in film school, you're, you're dealing with, you know, directing, you make some short films and your childhood interest in movies like, King Kong and, you know, the Ray Harryhausen films and stuff was there, like you wind up working nights, like sort of as a night watchman at the, the, the Valjean facility. Yes. Right. And then uh, you get this other opportunity, but they're doing some effects work. Was, if, was, was visual effects, was that something that prior to your time as the night watchman i mean two i guess two things like when you were the night watchman at, at on the at at the valjean facility did you know that that was going to be a big movie i mean because everybody talks about like before that movie came out that it looked like nobody knew if it was going to be anything they were just like this is cool like this is the stuff we're into you know 
Uh, um, I, what happened was, I don't know that they knew it in the beginning. Um, it took them a year to get up to speed to make all the motion control equipment and the cameras right. and, and figure that all out. So, so now um, they have a year to shoot everything and, and it's, they're running hard. But what became kind of clear to them is they started getting very excited. And I'm not, you know, I walk around the facility, but I don't get to see any of the film or anything. So I don't, yeah. I don't really know, but I'm getting the vibe from everybody that, wait a minute, this stuff is turning out pretty good. In fact, uh, a lot of people said, I'm going to buy stock in 20th Century Fox. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, I don't have that money to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, and, and I, no, Matt, I, you know, I was going to make the next It's a Wonderful Life. You know, I was right. going to make the best film ever, right? Uh, directing, probably, uh, that sort of thing. But before Star Wars came out, you went to this other job where you could work in production. Is that right? Um. I can't, it, it, it might've been around that, that same time. Um, but how, how had you garnered that knowledge to know how to shoot, you know, like a mat pass and stuff like that? Like, well, it, it, what happened was I, I was just the production person. And so Jim Valu and his assistant are doing these things. So I'm mm. learning as I go from them okay. on the first season of Jason. Right. Uh, you know, all the, all the steps and exactly gotcha. how you shoot the stuff. So um, what happened uh, after that was Jim Ballou left. He went to ILM and he okay. was a supervisor for a while. And then um, uh, they hired this guy out of USC, Mike McAllister. And, and he <laughs> came in the door and I was ready. I, uh, I moved up to camera assistant and uh, you know, the thing was, Matt, on, when I was a production person, I'd come in at eight in the morning. And because things started getting crazy at the end of the show, we'd work. Uh, the, you had to have the film into the lab by midnight. We'd work till 1130. And guess who was driving 100 miles an hour to Hollywood to get the film in? So I'm working from eight to midnight plus. Yeah. And I was like, man, I just, I need a break to get into, you know, I was hoping camera because I love doing the camera work at, at, uh, in school, you know, and, and of course on my own and that sort of thing. So, yeah. um, the opportunity arose on the second season of, of Jason. So, uh, I was like, yes. So you wonderful. really were learning it. Like, I mean, some of it in school, but so much of it on the job. Yeah. You know, because who knew effects? Yeah, and in fact, it worked out in my favor because at the time, um, as you've heard maybe from other sources, that this was a union job. Well, how do you get in the union? You know, there it was this and it was this circle that was yeah. impossible to. But guess what? There was hardly anybody doing effects work. So uh, the business agent for uh, it was six fifty nine at that point in time. And he comes out and meets with me on the stage. And this guy is, <laughs> he's, he's huge in the organization. And I'm just like, gulp, you know, <laughs> meet with this guy. But like I said, I had this advantage. I, I knew all the stuff that we were doing that these guys had never heard of virtually. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it's just barely removed from Star Wars. So anyway, I got in into the union. And so that was, that was 
open the door even further for me. Yeah, for sure. Fantastic. Yeah. Do you know what, like, uh, I mean, this may be a weird question. I don't know, but like, (laughs) (laughs) they're all kind of weird questions, I suppose. But do you know what it was for you about camera specifically that was really compelling? Like, just was it being like that close to capturing the actual image or is there something about that like engagement with the tools like because it's kind of a you know there's an art to it but it's also pretty techy too like it requires a certain kind of like brain i think yeah i i was you know not worried too much or really super interested in the tech side and um but what I really was interested in was creating images that not only were good, but that I could be proud of. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, you you have mentioned in the past about obsessive compulsive, and and it it almost <laughs> slowed me down various times because I'd be shooting something and constantly, you know, playing with the light. Where can it work? Where is this going to make a glint on the spaceship? Where is this? You know, and it was just, um, you know, there was. It was just inside me to to try and bring this out and and make these memorable images. Because we only, you know, effect shots for the most part are literally only a couple of seconds a lot of the time. Not only does it have to read, but it has to read quickly and you have to know what you're looking at and you have to like what you're looking at for the whole thing to be successful. Well, I think interestingly, like effect shots in sort of those like, you know, golden day, golden years of visual effects, like they were always only a couple seconds long. We're now in an age of visual effects where like they can be, you know, thousands of frames in length and you see like everything. And it's like the, but I also sort of think sometimes, I mean, maybe this is the old man yelling at cloud moment, but, you know, I sometimes think that uh, just because you can show everything doesn't mean you should, you know, sometimes it's kind of nice to leave it to the imagination and keep things shorter too. I don't know. (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, get them to come back for more. That's 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 the yeah. thing, right? Yeah, leave people wanting more rather than showing them the whole thing, I suppose. But um, so you're working at this job and you're getting an opportunity to do some effects work. You're apprenticing, you get into the union. What happens after that? Then um, Apogee, you know, ILM has left and now Apogee has taken over John Dykstra's heading up Apogee and uh and so they get Star Trek the motion picture and so I'm back they hire me as a camera assistant but I'm working night crew for three months straight uh on the V'ger sequence mm-hmm. and it was just <laughs> we had a, a stage and and a control booth and a window where we could look out but it's to this day I mean it was the thickest smoke I I ever worked in i mean you it was just if you okay pat go out to the camera and check something be like okay <laughs> see you in five or seven minutes because you know you, you have a flashlight and you're just barely seeing where your feet are you know yeah. so it was but um they also had a laser and the laser would uh come from the control booth it would shoot through a piece of duvetine into a mirror and then over to the Vija model, and they had this spinning mirror, and it would create all these cool laser effects in the smoke. 
and we would spend you know all night doing this uh you know pa all the passes we had to do and uh so one night <laughs> the gaffer goes fire i'm like what fire <laughs> so i'm like where's the fire extinguisher oh i, I grabbed him we're in the control booth so i grabbed the fire extinguisher i ran over there and you know hold the thing up at oh i gotta pull the pin so, you know <laughs> pull the pin and then all the co2 comes through from the other from the stage side <laughs> hit me in the face oh wow the the, the stagehand had, had gotten over there from the inside and, and but the laser had hit the duvet and got bumped and it hit the <laughs> Got on and started on fire. So, yeah. <laughs> but the, you know, we went straight. We they, there was a holiday in the middle of that, and they said, "Okay, we're going to give you this one day off." People came back the next day, and everybody was so messed up, <laughs> <laughs> having fun for one day. We were useless the next day, and they just went, "You guys are not getting another day off till we finish this thing." <laughs> so. So that must have been kind of exciting, though. I would think, like, I, I don't know, were you as a kid growing up in Manhattan Beach? Did you watch any of the original Star Trek on TV? Oh, love the original series, and so it must have know, been kind of cool to get to work on the first oh, movie, right? I mean, that's pretty absolutely. Neat. I, you know, it was one of those things like, oh, why aren't they making a Star Trek movie? You know, this is crazy. You know, so, um, but. Uh, the funny thing is the the Nielsen ratings, apparently, I'm not sure how those things were. I know they had some boxes in a certain number of homes. Um, but what they would also do is they'd send you uh, just random households. They send you a, a log to fill out. <laughs> and so my brother and I, like my parents didn't care here, you know, they strapped like four <laughs> quarters to the thing. Please fill this up. And so we just Star Trek, Star Trek, Star Trek, you know. <laughs> all over the thing <laughs> try and keep it alive so yeah we just we, i absolutely loved it just loved it so you worked on that show and then uh at apogee and then that show wraps and are you do you stay there for a time or no they're they kicked me out and i i head over to i got this work at a place called mid-ocean motion pictures and it, it just they did you know, commercials and that sort of thing and promos and music videos stuff. And, and it was a lot of down shooter work, that kind of thing. And I'm like, you know, Hey, paying the bills. Sorry. By uh, down shooter work. What do you mean by that? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, like with Oxberries that, uh, the camera is a motion control device. That's it's, uh, works vertically up and down. Okay. And you have a, a, a light box, and you're shooting the light box and you're changing the artwork on the light box for each gotcha. frame or a couple of frames, that sort yeah. of thing. And so um, if you were the night guy, um, you had to take the film in and it was the same thing. It had to be in by midnight. Um, and so one night I'm shooting and I, it, here's the thing. At the beginning of effects, all these places had their own proprietary motion control uh, systems. So everywhere you go, you got to learn, okay, what's this system? How does it work? You know? And so this one was particularly difficult. I mean, mathematical, everything else. And I was, okay, okay. I'm struggling to learn this. So I was staying late that night. Uh, I had to take the film in and, and uh, the guy next door, Tom Bush was like, oh, Pat, you want me to take the film in? I'm like, oh yeah, I was all engrossed in what I was doing. He took the film. I'm like, God, don't have to worry about that. An hour later, I, I'm sort of like, where the heck is Tom? 
So I go out to the front of the building and these, these stages were virtually soundproof. The, the equipment made a lot of noise from the fans and, and the walls were thick, so mm-hmm. you couldn't hear anything. So I go out to the front and they had, this is Hollywood, and they had uh, a, a security guy at the, at the desk and he sees me, you know, practically falls out of his chair. He's like, where did you come from? And I'm like, I've been working in the back. And I said, I'm, uh, I'm waiting for Tom Bush to come back. He goes, he was gunned down in a random shooting, a drive-by out Oh, front. my God. And uh, he had a motorcycle. I don't know if that was a factor, but someone else got shot randomly two blocks away as well. Wow. Scary. They never figured it out. I mean, there's gang initiation. Who knows what it was? Uh, but that was a dark, introspective period for me because that could have been me easily. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, it the the place closed down for a little bit. It it opened up. I went back for a short time, but then I left, um, and it went bankrupt shortly after that. Anyway, and uh, and then I went over to um, Roger Corman's, and they were doing Battle Beyond the Stars, <laughs> Richard Thomas and Robert Vaughn and George Yeah, McCart. I remember I saw that one as a kid. Yeah. Yep. And they were in Venice, California, um, and they were in this, uh, this same thing, all these effects places and studios. It was Hammond Lumberyard, <laughs> the sign up there, Hammond. <laughs> Um, so I go in there and, um, this operator that I, Hey, I was back on night shift again. So I'm, I'm working with this operator and, you know, our first two weeks, he's like, Hey, you, everybody leaves. He goes, okay, you want to get high? I'm like, uh, no. So he just smokes it up for two weeks and they come to me and they say, Hey, Pat, uh, we got rid of that other guy. We hadn't done anything, you know, and, and so, Hey, you want to take over? You want to, uh, you know, be the operator DP? I'm like, yep, you bet. And so now I'm shooting the stuff. And uh, so that was, that was pretty great. Um, I got a call from Mike McAllister at that point. Do you want to come up and work on Empire Strikes Back? I love Star Wars. Love working with Mike. But I thought my future was in Hollywood. I, my mantra was, I wasn't born this close to Hollywood for nothing. So I was reluctant to leave. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm learning all this stuff. And, you know, now that I was shooting, okay, this is, this is the next step in my evolution. I, 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 sure. I know I'm, I'm going back. I'd be stepping back down again. And so I, I thought, I said, I, so I turned back. And uh, I mean, I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to think. Like if you finally get the opportunity to sort of be the, the head cheese, do you want to go back to being the assistant cheese, you know? Sure. Yeah. And the guy who was running the uh, effects crew uh, was James Cameron. <laughs> no <laughs> and, kidding. Wow. Yes. And uh, James would, geez, this guy was so talented. I, I mean, he was doing front and rear projection. He was doing all the pyro. He was doing second unit directing, and he's supervising all of us. <laughs> and and uh, but he uh, he was a taskmaster, and he could 
you know, he, he would <laughs> go around yelling at people. We got along famously. I'd make him laugh. There you go. And we, we were just, you know, on the same page. So um, we had a good friendship. And funny thing is he showed me one of his home movies and he had this, this guy in this cockpit of a giant robot that, you know, they did stop motion. And it was just, whoa. I mean, I was, I was thought this is fantastic. And he was telling me the story, uh, one of his scripts, you know, I'm writing scripts. I got this one about this, this robot guy that, you know, he's getting run over by a truck, but he gets back up again. And, you know, it's hard to kill him and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, wow. Okay. Good luck. And, and uh, <laughs> so as we're walking out the door after we're finished with the show, I'm like, Jim, you gotta, you gotta go up to ILM. You know, they got, they could use your skills. And he's like, he goes, eh, I'm dating a producer, Gail Ann Hurd. I got some other plans. I'm like, okay. <laughs> About four years later, I'm in the theater and, you know, watching this movie. I'm like, Terminator, that's his story. That's you know, the robot guy. The robot guy. <laughs> I was like, wow, he did it. You know, good for him. So. That's so cool. Um, That's kind of interesting having like, you know, that like a window into just somebody that everybody knows, like, you know, the early part of their career and you're working with them and you kind of see this, but you could already kind of see it on them. It sounds like too. Oh yeah. He was, he was like, man, this guy try and stop him, you know? <laughs> so after that, um, oh, the funny thing that happened right at the end is this, the guy who's working the day crew comes up to me and he goes, uh, you might hear about this, but I've been taking credit for all your shots and dailies. <laughs> I'm like, uh, oh, really? You. Yeah, that's swell, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I leave uh, and looking for work. And and a couple months later, um, Corman's calls back and they say, hey, we found out that you were the guy <laughs> that was doing all the shots for that crew. It's like, how would you like a job in production? And here's the thing with Corman's films is his producers, uh, he, if you, you know, did a good job, he would down the line, let you direct a film. And so I, I was like, gosh, you know, here's, here I am at a crossroads again. Should I go in that direction, work on these films that I know are not going to be spectacular but maybe i could get a shot to direct something down the line that's pretty cool what should i do so um i turned it down i said no nah. it's you know i it wasn't a sure thing obviously yeah so i but what happened next was the actors went on strike uh, summer of 1980 musicians went on strike then the uh, they resolved, but then the writers went on strike in 1981. And so <laughs> I've been not working, you know, that much. So um, anyway, just, hey, enjoying life while I can. Um, but uh, what happened was uh, July 4th, uh, we were going to go see some fireworks in Santa Monica. And so uh, my buddy was driving and my brother was in the front seat and I was in the back seat behind the driver and I had a date with me and she was sitting right next to me in the middle seat and we were leaving Play It Al Rey and we got into a head-on collision. Uh, 
Oh my God. And, um, and everyone, everyone was injured. We didn't, seatbelts weren't the thing then. And everyone was injured. Everyone was, nobody got killed. Thank goodness. The guy in the other car was fine. Uh, but um, I got smashed up against the driver's seat, blacked out, another concussion. Um, but my date, she flew forward in between the seats and hit her head probably on the dashboard or something. And so after I got out of the hospital, I go to see her. She's in the hospital. And she's like, yeah, I never want to see you again. And, you know, we were casual. It wasn't a, a serious thing. We'd gone on some dates. So I'm like, okay, um, I kind of had it with LA. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I literally prayed. I said, you know, if, if Mike McAllister would call me again for another job, man, I'd be out of here in a second. And believe it or not, two weeks later, he calls up. Hey, Pat, you want to work on this film, E.T., The Extraterrestrial? I'm like, what's the name of it? Uh, who cares? Yeah, I'm there. <laughs> and uh, so I just loaded up my Volkswagen with everything I could fit into it and, and came up here to uh, work on E.T., Wow. That's and, cool. I mean, it's like, it's kind of one of those things where like all the signs were kind of pointing in this one direction and the opportunity comes, comes to fruition. That's great. How many, how many times do you have to get killed before you realize, Hey, maybe I should go somewhere else for a while. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, don't push your luck too far, Pat. So <laughs> um, the interesting thing is we, we started on the film and it was great to reunite with Mike and, um, and then see, these guys I knew, you know, Ezel Young and Paul Houston and Lauren Peterson and Steve Golley and, and, and Dennis Buren was there, of course. And, um, and then Scott Farrar had actually met at uh, Mid-Ocean Motion Pictures. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he came on and they were working on Star Trek, I think. And he and Bob Hill, it turns out Bob Hill was right down the street from Corman's studio in Venice working on Koyana Scotsi. <laughs> oh yeah yeah you could pass by him on the street not know him and then you know see him later and oh you were there with then so was i you know <laughs> so pretty cool so but now um, when you come back up and you work and you you first come up and you're working on et are you back in the assistant role now i'm back in the assistant role but it was fine with me because i i needed to get this extra knowledge now from the high-end work that ILM was doing. And so this was a necessary step in, in my education. And Wait, so I'm curious though, I, I didn't ask this, like when you started uh, in the business and you were working on Star Trek and, you know, started to get some opportunity to work on these big movies and then eventually, of course, going up to ILM, what did your folks think of this in your family where they think did they think that was pretty cool or were they just like pat what a weirdo no 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 they uh they, uh, what was what was great about my dad and mom is they were just totally supportive their thing was so we're cool. going to empower you as much as we can you know dad put anybody who wanted to go through college he put us through college and i thought that was you know, fantastic. I didn't have to work to get through college. I could 
In fact, I, I double majored, you know, and dad's like, maybe you should, you know, this may have been <laughs> the only caveat to doing the communication arts was the school that it was called, that you know, <laughs> getting the degree in. But he said, maybe, maybe you should take some business classes too. <laughs> so we ended up uh, double majoring in, in business. And in fact, when I went to pick up my diploma, I said, hey, uh, I double majored in business. I want a, a, a second diploma. And they're like, uh, you have to come back and have a year in residence. And I'm like, see ya. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's but, great uh, though that they were yeah. so supportive and that they they you know were able to you know see uh, your success at that early age too. It's sort of like their investment in you pays off, you know. Exactly, and they were not um, big movie people mom liked him more than dad dad liked a good western pretty much you mm -hmm, know and sure um but now mom is uh she just started getting into the movies more and more and more uh which was good for her because she really liked him but uh yeah so um fantastic family support and always could count on that wonderful so at ilm you're you start on et and you wind up being at ilm for how many years on and off for 25 years now you say so on and off and so if there were like you would work on shows and then if there was a, a slow period and things would uh you would go and either do other work or cruise over to the unemployment office for a short while well, or? What, what happened was after i uh finished on et they were like well the next job is uh jedi but we don't know if you're on it so I went back to LA. And, oh, you did? Um, okay. And so I worked on, uh, I went back to Apogee and I worked on Never Say Never Again. Oh, okay. Uh, and so the cool thing, you know, they were doing, and I met Harry Walton, the animator. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the shots we worked on was uh, Sean Connery and Kim Basinger are on a horse and they're getting chased and they're on some castle or something. And they jump over the wall and go, you know, 75 feet or whatever into the water and so they did that as a stop motion shot and the cool thing was they used reverse blue screen i don't know if you've heard of that but what it was is they had the model surrounded by black lights they would paint the model with an ultraviolet paint and so they'd shoot a beauty frame with the regular lights on and then they turn off the beauty lights and the black lights would come on and the model would be blue and mm -hmm. so then you take a frame of that and on and on and on. So I thought that was kind of a, a cool process that it was yeah. nice to eliminate the blue screen. But like any method, it wasn't, you know, perfect. So and it's, sure. you don't want to paint people with ultraviolet blue. <laughs> Close your eyes now. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I was thinking, you know, they don't know if I'm on the show. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, working with Apogee and ready to do whatever they want to do. And so we did this test. The next thing was this test for Dune. Um, and they had uh, this set outside where they're going to shoot the test out in the parking lot. And it was this 20 by 20 or whatever um, thing filled with micro balloons, little glass balloons that looked mm -hmm. like sand. And so that, the you know, the worm could could slide through that thing. But they said, it's like, okay, we're shooting this test and Pat, you got to watch out because there's, you know, thousands of micro balloons. If those things get in your lungs, you know, they can tear your lungs out. 
So, <laughs> no big so deal. I'm wearing a respirator in the whole business. Sure. But I'm just like freaked out. You know? <laughs> like, at the end of the day, did I, did I swallow one? Oh my God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so then I got a call from uh, ILM again. Hey, we want you to come up on Jedi. And I'm, I'm like, hey, this is, this is the bird in the hand. Yeah, you're not going to use any micro balloons, are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so uh, I go into Bob Shepard, the production manager, and to break the news to him that I'm 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 going to take this job. And he's like, starts screaming at me. You know, really, you're leaving us. You know, you, hey, you do this, you will never work in this town again. He actually, I was stifling laughter because I was like, how cool is that? That I, you know, somebody would say that to me, you know I mean? <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So, um, and he was kind of practically right, but. <laughs> well, but, but it's also like, I think that kind of a response from someone who's in charge, an emotional response that has with it a, you know, kind of this sort of Damocles, you know, that's not really uh somebody that in in the long run you might not want to work with somebody like that for too long you know i mean it's like they're sort of showing all their cards and it's like i don't know about that he's a bit volatile yeah that's for yeah. sure yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so i came back up for for jedi and and uh and the, the cool thing was you know et and jedi you go on location first so now you know, like especially ET, we were with the first unit. Um, you know, I get to watch Spielberg work, all this kind of stuff, and that was fun to. Okay, I'm actually here seeing how this is done in case you know I ever get to do this. You know, um, and then Jedi, we were pretty much um, on location, uh, Northern California, shooting. Uh, we were on the speeder bike sequence, so we went out and shot tons of plates, and um, and they had just. Um, Garrett Brown had just okay. developed Steadicam, and and so he was doing the Steadicam moves through the forest for this for a lot of the plates, and so that was pretty cool to see uh, this new thing introduced and and the results you got, which was um, you know worked wonderfully. Yeah. Um, when we came back to the studio, we did okay. Hey, we're we're going around the clock. Uh, shooting there's so many shots in in jedi hundreds and hundreds of shots you know so uh, we had to do a three-month stint on nights and uh and then there we switched back over to days and it turned out things weren't working too good uh with the crew that took over so hey mike and pat can you do three more months on nights <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, oh boy! Um, so, so we did, we did that, um, which was you know, it's difficult. It's difficult. Well, yeah, it's uh, hard working. Like, was it so? Was it a, like a swing or a graveyard style shift? It was, it was. We we would come in probably around six or so, um, do a little transition, and then what was happening was the other night crews. They said, okay, night cruise, you can just work eight hours if you want. A lot of guys were, the crews were leaving at two or three. Mm -hmm. But there's also, gosh, there's this kind of, we'd love you to get a certain number of elements, five or six elements a night if you're shooting spaceships, that kind of thing. And so 
we didn't leave till <laughs> six in the morning most of the time. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes, a couple of times, the, the day crew came in and turned on the lights on us. <laughs> we were still <laughs> shooting. One of So one shot, we were nights. We had one helper, one stage helper. Um, it was Dickie Doba. And, and so we're doing the shot. Do you remember the shot where the speeder's going through the forest city? And the Ewoks throw a rope and it spins them around the tree. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Kaboom. So we start doing that on the Vista Cruiser stage, and uh, Mike determines there's not enough space. We need we need a wider space. He goes, let's go over to the main stage and set up there. So we go over there, and we spent the night um, in, getting equipment and doing all this stuff. The camera was, I think, pretty, pretty much locked off, except for pan and tilt. So it, it, <laughs> we're over there hanging lights in the grid. D- Dickie was not having a good time. In fact, he quit <laughs> after that night. I don't blame him. Um, but we get <laughs> to where the next crew is coming in, 7 a.m. in the morning. We've been there for, you know, 13 hours. And the, we would not have gotten the shot done if this crew didn't help us, the next crew. So these guys jump in and they're helping us finish the light. We actually have to. They had a gigantic blue screen on the main stage. We had to truck that thing during the shot as as the as the biker spun around. So someone's on the forklift, you know, moving the blue screen and all this kind of stuff. Big deal. I look at my watch as I'm getting in my car, 11 a.m. Oh wow! <laughs> my, just a 17-hour day, uh, <laughs> my longest day ever at ILM. It well, it's out. kind of interesting, though. Like there is a there is definitely a long tradition. I don't know if my tradition maybe isn't the right word. Some it's a necessity at times. There has been a long uh, necessity that has always manifested in visual effects, even to this day, where there are times where you know planning and scheduling and sometimes complexity don't always like adhere to the same schedule and it requires at times you know a herculean effort on the part of those people who are responsible for getting those shots completed and i don't think those are ever fun like i i always used to say you know the few times i i, I always say i did 110 hours a week for 3 weeks straight at the end wow. of king kong and so i I Jeez. made a ton of money in overtime, but I feel like I definitely lost a couple of years of my life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I can it's see just, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Mike stepped up to the challenge and, you know, it didn't go unnoticed and he, he did very well for himself at ILM. Uh, but he was, you know, that was his thing. He's like, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to produce and, and, and that's all that's important. I think um, there's a personality too of, people that go into effects who have this, it's a very goal oriented um, and, and it's a service oriented industry, but there's like, you set these goals and there is this kind of real desire to achieve, you know, regardless of the personal sacrifice at times. No, no question. I mean, it's, it's, it's a certain kind of person. Yeah, absolutely. A sucker. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, you gotta, yeah, you gotta be into the minutiae. I'll tell you, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's otherwise you're not gonna make it. But what I what I found over time was just that visual effects 
was very satisfying because as a cameraman, I'm running the crew. uh, I'm determining what this thing's going to look like. uh, And I'm actually filming it. And, and so it was, it was, I just found it very gratifying. And I had an opportunity here and there to move up and didn't take it. You know, at that point it was, it was, you know, I didn't really feel like I wanted to do anything else. I was just yeah, really I mean, happy shoot, doing like what o- I do. operating in that way and shooting all that stuff. Like, yeah, there's a degree to which, you know, running the crew on certainly on all the, you know, the stuff on the motion control stage or whatever, like it's you're you're directing the scene, really. You know, I mean you're you're matching to something else, but it's like, you know, you're you're getting to kind of run the show. You're kind of the boss of the room a little bit. Absolutely. <laughs> so um one funny thing is we were shooting elements on the fly when we were shooting all the the spaceships in the in the battle sequences. And Joe Fulmer came on uh after Dickie left. And uh so we wouldn't even, you know, wait to set flags. We would just flag the lens so that no flares would happen while we were shooting. So we just set up the lens, okay, roll camera. And Joe Bob, as we call him, would would be on one side of the camera. I'd be on the other, and we flag in the lens. And you know, we crossed our fingers that we did it right. And so we'd go to dailies every morning, um, or every afternoon. We came in and and we, <laughs> Joe Joe says, I'm going to sit in the top row of D building screening room, right by the door that leads into projection, and then out to editorial. Uh, he goes, I'm sitting right there just in case. We're sitting there trying to flag the lens, and all you see is our faces, you know, as the lens is all flared, and you see who missed the job, missed flagging the lens. You know? So he and I sat up in the, those two seats right on the aisle so we could <laughs> run out. And, you know, fortunately, we never had to, but I, yeah. I, I, I thought that was, that was very funny. Now, you're, you're at ILM for a long time, but you're there at like a really interesting juncture where for many years in your stint, you're working in a very traditional kind of, you know, historically traditional kind of visual effects capacity. You're shooting on motion picture film. You're, you know, uh, you're creating uh, passes that are being opti- optically composited um, and really thinking about things in a certain way. What happens? Uh, does it change a lot for you in the transition to a more digital workflow? It, it, it did because of now the, the equipment and the lighting um, were big, a, a big factor, but what happened was, you know, with all the experience, everybody knew now, okay, we have to make adjustments. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so when George got uh, us using, you know, those Sony HD cameras for uh, Star Wars, you know, the, the first of something new is not always perfect. <laughs> it's more of a <laughs> sure. prototype. And so what we found is, of course, these things didn't have the resolution of film. So you, we were losing um, stuff at the top and bottom of the scale. Uh, and so 
you had to compensate for that lighting wise. And otherwise, you know, you'd blow out the picture on mm -hmm. one end or, or make it too dark in another. And, and yeah. now there's no information at all. And whereas film, you could push it or pull it and and, and there was almost always something there. So that was, that was pretty cool. But I'll tell you what um, I really liked was you could then see what you're doing <laughs> mm -hmm. right then and there. You didn't have to wait till the next morning to go, oh, you know, that was in the frame that should have been. You wouldn't there. have to sit in the aisle in the screening yes, room. <laughs> exactly. So I, I, and you know, it sped up production because when you're sitting there waiting for your film to come back, okay, it could be four o'clock in the afternoon. I can't start on the next shot. I've got to see if this one is difficult enough. I, I can't just, you know, throw that away. I got to, I got to make sure. Otherwise it's a day going backwards. And uh, that actually would happen a couple of times. And in, in, on the motion control stages, we started with um, backlit blue screens, which were a bunch of fluorescent tubes inside mm -hmm. these gigantic, you know, boxes that were, you know, 20 feet long, 20 feet tall. And, and, uh, and so <laughs> you'd shoot something and you'd bring it into the optical would check it first thing in the morning, you're negative. And I remember one time we were doing one of the last shots and around the Enterprise in a Star Trek movie. And it was a big deal, you know, a swing around. And so, you know, the lighting was, you know, you got to hide the lighting because you got your scene, two thirds of the ship, all that kind of stuff. And, and the logos, we'd, we'd have to do those manually and you have to get the, the wings on the inky focal spots just right to make it look perfect and it couldn't mm -hmm. be fuzzy or out of focus you know all this stuff and then one time john ellis like no you know the problem was as you as you swung around and if you had to move your blue screen the the lights wouldn't reflect the same way and you'd get a dark spot here and there and he's like oh no this shot won't work you have to redo it <laughs> Oh no, that one was so hard, you know. So that that would happen occasionally, and uh, uh, that was the other thing with you know CG and and uh, being able to fix anything. Uh, yeah. It was that that was helpful. You didn't have to worry about that stuff ever again. You know, <laughs> they they wrote it if they had to, whatever it took. Did you have a in your time, you know, working in at ILM? Did you have a um? This kind of, again, another corny question, forgive the corny questions, but did you have a favorite show? Like something where the, the tasks that you were uh, faced with were really uniquely challenging and interesting, you know, that really stand out? Uh, my, my favorite was Hunt for Red October. And the, the reason was because this was not an effects movie. This, these submarines have to look real they you have to believe that this mm -hmm. is you know they fit into the real world and um it, it, our space wasn't big enough in ILM. we went to these uh, over to richmond and shot in these fruit bays and uh the funny thing is we were setting up to do that and um it was october and uh, and we realized we're gonna have to get shots that are literally scraping the ship because they had like 10, 12 foot models, but they also, they built a 20 foot Red October as well for some, some other cool shots. Uh, Marty Rosenberg ended up shooting those close up shots. Um, but uh, I, 
I needed a front surface mirror that I could attach because the body of the camera otherwise was it was going to scrape against the ship. And so I had uh, Lanny Cermak working on that. And so he called me one day. He's like, hey, you know, come back over and check out this mirror setup on the camera. So I came back there, came across the Richmond Bridge around 4.30 and, and went into equipment maintenance. And he goes, there it is. Take a look. I put my eye up to the uh, viewfinder. And the mirror is shaking. I'm like, I stand up, you got earthquake. The 1989 <laughs> earthquake had hit just no 504, way. just as I look through the camera. No kidding. And my gosh, I walk like a drunken sailor to the to the door out to the courtyard. And I was like, wow, you know, that was that was crazy. And I just felt super lucky because a lot of people. We're in lifts 20 feet in the air that were swinging oh, sure. back and forth and, and people got stuck because bridges were closed and everything else. They had to sleep there overnight and all that stuff. I, I just felt so fortunate that I didn't have to do that. I was at work at a bookstore. I was in at university at the time at San Francisco State and I was at a bookstore working and I was standing behind the counter like checking some lady out who... Well, not, I wasn't checking her out, but I was checking, I was helping her check out with her books, right? Like, and um, she had some children's books or something. And all of a sudden, everything started to shake. And I was like, whoa, it's an earthquake. And then it really started to shake. And it was all the books on all the bookshelves in the entire bookstore. All of a sudden, all at once just leapt off the shelves and onto the floor. Oh, my God. And the power went out. And then the lady was like, can I buy these? And I was like, no, but you could probably take them right now. Nobody would be able to stop you. <laughs> and she put them on the counter and she left. And then we closed the gate to the bookstore and then locked the door. And like idiots, we all lit up the cigarette because, you know, which was probably the dumbest thing to do in case there was gas, but we were like yeah. all so freaked out. And then the one guy who was like the manager, he looked at us and he's like, looked back at the store where all the books were on the floor. And he goes, well, where do you want to start? <laughs> You're Whoa. putting everything back. And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to leave. Yeah, <laughs> I've had enough for one day. Yeah, yeah. I need to take a break. You know, I tried to call home to Nevada, and the lines were down. Yeah. And then, 8111, I get a call. I didn't even know what that meant at the beginning, why you called it this. <laughs> and so, guess what? It's my sister in Hawaii. The long-distance line worked fine. Oh, weird. Going, How are you doing? Are you okay? <laughs> I'm just like, I can't call 10 miles away, but... <laughs> That's wild. It was, yeah, it was wacky. Really, you didn't have you didn't have eighty one eleven like impressed into your subconscious such that you would have dreams where that you'd hear that thing. I totally did. You know, the uh, it's it's one of those things. Oh yeah, I mean, we're on the stage. We hear this thing constantly, and I'll tell you something. Tune it out that, after a while. <laughs> yes, that what what happened was. I'm on a stage where we're getting all this stuff done. I got the the stage hands. You, you, you know. Michael Oggy worked on the stages. You know, as a, sure. as, he was kind of the premier gaffer uh, for many years on the, on the stages. And he'd be building stuff and hanging lights and, and doing stuff. And, and, uh, and I, I'm sitting there programming and crunching numbers. I'm like, I have to concentrate. And I learned to just try and let that become background and just focus on what I was doing. Yeah. It, really, it really helped a lot. But uh, yeah, but those, yeah, you kind of have to at a certain point, yeah. you know, it's like, cause it, yeah, it was omnipresent. It's so funny in the, the age of, you know, cell phones, like now, you know, inner office phones are almost meaningless, you know, but yeah. at the yeah. time it was the only way to communicate. 
Yeah, and it, you know that could be yeah, it could be it could be difficult trying to get a hold of people. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, with with Hunt for Red October, the, the thing was, it was in nine one one. We had to um, get. We were trying to get a shot a day. We had tried it. You know, they want to see a live action test, and now it's just there's just no way we could keep any everything steady. You know, so we went to motion control and we we took some of the motion control cranes and. Um, hung the submarines, uh, the cranes were on platforms and we hung the submarines with the Tad Kronowski inspired rigs that uh, I think Joe Fulmer had, you know, welded together these giant uh, uh, pieces of, you know, rectangular stuff that we could hang the wires from. And, and so the, the, uh, the cool thing is we're, we're controlling these things with wires. The wires disappear. We we in the smoke because we just we smoke it up so heavily. Um, you can't see it. I put a little super frost on the, uh, a, a filter on the lens. Uh, in addition, and uh, and so it just it saved post tons of work. We had multiple two, and I think one shot we had three submarines in the same shot, and we're doing it all live. <laughs> you know, I was programming them and doing the whole business, and uh, so it was you know typically like 14 hour days for me stop at dailies go to richmond leaving uh poor scott squires is is uh, he's supervising it and he's all day facts and this is what we had to do facts right facts yeah. storyboards and you know stuff back and forth and i had to guess during the day okay this is the general idea of the shot okay so i'd spend the day just like roughing it in and and then come six o'clock okay you know he'd have to finalize it with the director and and then okay, here's what we're really doing. Okay. And then we, we, we hustle for an hour or two and, and get it all cleaned up and then we'd shoot. And so, you know, between eight and nine, we, we, you know, finish shooting every night. So, uh, long days. And I had, um, uh, talked with Jim Morris about, you know, here's, Hey, here's all the difficulties we're facing. You know, Jim was in charge of general manager in charge of production and all that stuff. And so I was keeping him, you know, every once in a while I talked to him and, and he was nice enough at the end of the show. Um, they gave me a, a, they had a company meeting at the ranch and I was shocked. They said, hey, Pat Sweeney, special recognition this year, you know, sort of employee of the year or whatever. I don't know. So I was, I got a little clock with an inscription on it and the whole business. And, and so I thought that was, Jim was, <laughs> he was awesome. <laughs> I mean, he, the best thing he did was just listen. You know, you had yeah. Tom's difficulties, and and so he, he, you know, he'd help whichever way he could. Yeah, he was the, the best ever at doing that that I certainly ever came across. So, yeah, uh, it was cool. But the, the the one my brother reminded me of one side note is McTiernan had worked at Boss Film, and my brother was working at Boss Film, and my brother was like the optical supervisor. And so he was in all these meetings with John McTurner. Then John McTurner comes up and I'm shooting. Hmm. <laughs> Did John make the connection? He never said anything. So I just, I thought that. he's probably like, wherever they do this show, this guy's following it. That's interesting. So uh, <laughs> this guy's the guy really making the movie. I'm starting to think, I don't know. Yeah. What am I doing uh, here? That's pretty good. That's cool. So I, I have to ask though, was there always like an employee of the year with the clock? No, no I don't believe so. Oh, okay. I was going to no. say that. No, be it a, was like I say, it was 
a unique kind of special. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. And you know, that show still holds up pretty well. And I think it's pretty, you know, sort of famous in like effects nerd circles as being like, you know, the most successful kind of dry for wet uh <laughs> kind of shooting technique uh on a film, you know that I've ever heard of. I mean, I feel like it's, it's lauded a lot as something that was really an achievement. My college buddy, uh, Scott Shepard, I told him a few years back, I, I said, yeah, yeah, we shot that in smoke. He's like, what? That wasn't done in water. <laughs> and, and, you know, so I sold them, you know, and, and that's exactly what I was hoping to do. And it was kind of tricky. Cause I, I wanted it to, you know, these things are so deep in the ocean you you wouldn't even be able to see him right and yeah. that was you know so i i'm like i'm trying to make it dark but you got to see the thing and the whole business and and so you know we <laughs> we're kind of going back and forth <laughs> scott squires and me on that you know and i get it you know but yeah but i also wanted to make it somewhat mysterious as well as you know <laughs> being able to see this thing and and you know, I'm scraping the ship and, you know, Kim Smith is, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm wrecking the ship a little bit. So Kim's in there, of course, doing detail and, and John Foreman, um, you know, one time I, I, I over rotated the submarine, bing, 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 all the wires broke and it hit the ground and John had helped put it back together. But John, Sorry. all of a sudden, I, yeah, all of a sudden uh, on the camera rig, I look and there's just little Teeny, a teeny piece of white tape, and it's got a picture of a submarine and like a, a little torpedo and you know and red stuff that it had hit, you know. And so every time I hit the ship, all these little pieces of tape started <laughs> piling up on the camera rig. I thought that was that was so funny. That's good. Yeah, if they had asked you to make it look real, you could have just like left the lens cap on and ran the camera and been like. <laughs> <laughs> there Stare, you go. Really, it's as yeah. real as it can be. Yeah, that's cool. So, what was your last show at ILM? Um, let's see. They left. Uh, they left in two thousand, the middle of two thousand six. Actually, people. What happened was ILM moved yeah. in two thousand five, but they kept the stages going. For the next seven eight months, and uh, so you know, and then Kerner Optical took over, and so I started. I kept working on ILM shows, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, to me, the last show really was what I did uh, in 2019 for me, because even though I wasn't an ILM employee, it was a shot for them. Yeah, and it was episode nine, the rise of uh, Skywalker, and okay, we blew up the. Kajimi planet and it was <laughs> i had to look it up we <laughs> we shot video and this is the difficult thing about video was shooting high speed yeah um it, it was once again you're dealing with dynamic range mm -hmm. and so it was trick you know but now we had this uh phantom flex 4k uh, they could shoot a thousand frames a second. And so that's what we did. It took, uh, Jeff Heron was, <laughs> poor Jeff Heron. He was doing this thing, all the action, all the, there were separate explosions where it explodes in the middle, then to the right. Then, you know, suddenly there's a whole planet exploding. 
he had to do all of that had to happen in three quarters of a second. <laughs> oh, wow. And, you know, uh, 3210 couldn't believe how much light I needed. I had seven 20Ks <laughs> wow. for the key light, just, you know, for the rim of the planet. And, and then I had about five or so, uh, or six, I think, doing fill light on the planet and, and, you know, for the debris falling down, that sort of thing. And we had two cameras on it, one for a wider shot, one for a closer up uh, view. And uh, so it was, I'll tell you, it came out fantastically. Um, Roger Guyot was the supervisor and he was, it was so cool that he did it. He, he wanted to do it kind of the, the homage to, to the way we used to do things. Mm -hmm. And he told JJ Abrams and Abrams was like all over it. And uh, um, I'll tell you the most gratifying thing. I, it looked great. Jeff did a fantastic job and, you know, whew, my lighting all worked. So I was happy. <laughs> and, uh, but when I went to the bake off that year and I ran into Pat Tubach and, and I said, how did that shot do in composite? And he goes, we didn't have to do hardly anything to it at all. And I was like, yes, thank you very much. And after that, the pandemic hit and I said, I think I'm done. And uh, so I bookended my career starting with Star Wars, ending with Star Wars, which I thought pretty fitting. That's cool. So you, so you looked at the pandemic as an opportunity to just retire from the biz? You know what? Th things had, had slowed down. Um, uh, my back had started giving me troubles and I had to turn down some things where I knew ah, I'm going to carry equipment. And even with these 32 10 jobs, I'm, I'm hoisting those <laughs> 10 Ks up on stands and stuff like this, you know? And, and so I was like, I don't want to not be able to do a job perfectly. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the deal. It's like, I'm going to deliver. And so I've got to, you know, I realized that this, this is the time to stop. Yeah. And, well, uh, I think that's good. I mean, I think that's like, and you know, there is a point at which I always kind of felt like as part of a, a, an arc of a career, like there is a time where you feel like, well, like there's always a new challenge. There's always a new show, but it's like at a certain point you feel like, well, I've kind of done all I sort of set out to do. I don't know. I've, I've definitely had that feeling where it's like, I feel like I did what I wanted to do in the business. There was one other thing that the, uh, People, I went up and and shot on the box trolls at Leica Studios, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, the people <laughs> didn't know who I was at first, and then it got out. Wait a minute, this guy worked on Star Wars, you know, and a lot of them were all twenties, thirties, and they were, you know, it was like a budding ILM again. You know, yeah. it was kind of cool seeing that, you know, coming alive. Yeah, and uh, like my assistant Drew Fortier says to me. Uh, and Eric Adkins, who is, he was the second to last guy hired on the show. And he showed me the ropes and, uh, you know, it was fantastic. I, I couldn't have done it without him. And I walk on the door and they're like, Hey, Pat, um, oh, here's your sequence. It's the climax of the movie. So I, <laughs> I was like, okay, thank you. But my, my assistant drew says, I don't get it. Why are you here? Why aren't you doing these, you know, big shows somewhere else? And I said, Kind of like to what you said, it's like, there's always another show, but it's, it, when you have had the wonderful career that I've had, it, 
it doesn't come down to just the work. It comes down to the experience. Yeah. And I said, the people, the people that you're working with, that's, that's huge. And, you know, I made so many friends there and it was just for mm -hmm. a year. And it was, anyway, that's, I said, that's the gratification. And you'll see that as you, you know, as you go on in your career, they just look at me like, what, really? Um, yeah, that's really cool. I think that is like, it It always comes back to that, I think, in almost all these conversations. And I mean, I definitely have always felt that way looking back on, you know, different parts of my career that it's, the, yeah, it's always, it's the people, you know, like sometimes the shows are really cool. Sometimes the thing on a show is really cool. But the thing you remember probably more than anything is just the people that you worked with who were oftentimes really cool, sometimes really crazy. You know, but yeah. it's like, that's the whole, that's kind of the whole ride, I think, in a lot of ways. Exactly. Well, cool. And so now you're, uh, you're mostly retired, I gather. Retired. I, you know, I hate to say that word because you st there's always things to do. And sure. okay, now I'm, now I'm, you know, doing stuff around the house, that sort of thing. But I, um, I'm, I'm writing, I'm, um, uh, yeah, I'm writing down, especially <laughs> all this. I have so many stories. You know, we we got through you know one tenth, and yeah. th there's so many more anecdotes and and stories and just the cool stuff of you know what I worked on for sure. So I've been uh, uh, my friend Val is she's had some stuff published, and so she she read my you know first draft of the my ET chapter and uh, mm -hmm. and. Uh, she ended up putting that in her wastebasket and putting the coffee grounds on it. So I, I think I have a lot more work to do. Um, but uh, I do have a book out on reverse psychology. Please oh, really? don't buy it. Ah. Anyway, and um, yuck, I, oh, yuck, yuck. also, I uh, just finished a, a jigsaw puzzle. It says three to five years on the box. I did it less than a year. So I mean, I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, so I got, you know, I've, there's, there's tons to do. There's no, you never stop, right? Keep going. But, but so are you seriously considering writing a book? I am. Or is that I, a joke? And I've, I've uh, you know, I told Saletti this five years ago. Oh, is that a book? I'm like, I haven't started. No, but, you know, I, I just would be putting ideas down. And then um, during the pandemic, uh, my friend Val was doing um, Zoom meetings. Mm -hmm. And I saw people from college I haven't seen in, you know, 40 years. And so it was cool. And they, they wanted to hear the stories. So yeah. I was like, okay, I'm going to write down these stories and see what you think. But man, do I have a lot of work to do as a writer. So, uh, but anyway, it's kind of fun. It's getting me to do yeah. it, to share with friends, if nothing else, or family to see like, well, and you know, I think the other thing too, is that, you know, so much of the history of, you know, like your own personal history is is really an important part of you know the history of visual effects in motion picture history right and it's something that you know through all these conversations i'm having with people especially kind of uh you know more the sort of like the the older generation like you guys who were kind of there from the beginning of this you know sort of the height of the optical era and the transition into digital, like that history is so interesting. And there are different stories that get told, but I think the the more personal stories and the ones that um, 
articulate both, you know, the interesting anecdote, but also the 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 experience of the individuals who were doing that work, the the ways in which, you know, you talk about, you know, today you talked about a number of times, like, you know, solving a particular problem and how you sort of would think about, well, what do we need to do? How are we going to make this work? You know? And I think those are things that are really important to impart because you can't really learn that stuff in school. You can't really learn that stuff, you know, through anything else than through experiential learning and to share that knowledge, I think is really valuable. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Pat Sweeney, I can't thank you enough for taking time to come on and chat with me. It's been so much fun. And I, I so appreciate, uh, your humor. You were always definitely one of the funniest guys at ILM, uh, in my experience. Uh, so thanks for coming on and thanks for talking with me. It was my pleasure. And so great to see you, Matt. And I wish you well. Yeah. Thanks. You too. All right.